So would you consider yourself an optimist? Do you see the, the glass half full or half empty? How many, raise your hand if you see the glass half full. If you're, if you're a, that's good. You live in Erie. It's still snowing. It's almost May. Thankful. Raise your hand if you're a pessimist. You just kind of always see the wrong, okay. <laughs> Back there, there's a wife raising the husband's hand. I love that. All right, how many of you are what my husband calls a realist? Is what he says to me. I'm just a realist. Just a realist, Nicole. Just a realist. You'll never make it there on time. He's usually right. All right, I found this this week. I thought this was funny. Uh, if you're an optimist, the glass is half full. If you're a pessimist, the glass is half empty. If you're an engineer, the glass is twice the size it even needs to be. So, appreciate that. Now, I think that many people get confused between optimism and biblical hope. Biblical hope is optimistic, but it differs greatly from worldly optimism or positive thinking. Biblical hope is an optimistic thing of saying that certainly the truth is bright, that there is a bright future, but we're not just looking on the bright side. We know that this hope is valid and based on truth and based on certainty. And since our God is the God of hope, we represent him as people of hope. And so we have this moment where we're not just mere optimists or realists or engineers. We are, have this hope because of the certainty of God's promises in Christ. Because we know that we know that we know that we know that God is who he says he is and he does what he promises to do. That's what we know. And so therefore, we can be more than an optimist. We can have this biblical hope. And so the author of Hebrews was actually writing to people who were facing hardship. They were facing persecution because of their Christian faith. And they were actually about to abandon um, their faith in Christ. They were feeling like maybe it was too hard. And so he urges them to persevere. And he urges them to this biblical hope, this steady attitude of joy based on the promises of God. And I want to read to us in Hebrews 6, 17 through 18, it says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope, hold hope of, to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And so this passage says that God makes this promise to his children. It's as if he wants to say, listen, I know you're struggling. I know that you're not sure how to feel. I know that you need some encouragement. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make you a promise because the unchanging nature of who I am is so clear that when I make you a promise, when I make you an oath, you can know that you can take hold of the hope that that oath offers. And so, he, and so he does that for us. The promise and the oath that are meant to give us this deep confidence that we will inherit what he promises us, us in Jesus. And he's telling us in verse 18, take hold of this. Take hold of it. That's our takeaway today. Take hold of hope. I imagine it's almost like, um, like a dog who gets a bone and won't let it drop from its mouth. We, we had a a dog last summer and, and the dog would run over and it would want to play fetch but it would never let go of the ball. 
And so Joel would be like, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. And he's like, no, if I give it to you, I need it back. Yeah, but we got to throw it first, you know? He was so obsessed with this, with this ball that when we get that hope and we hold on to that hope that we don't ever let it go, that we feel secure in it, that we feel satisfied in it, that we take hold of it and we're, we have an action to it. And we sink our teeth into that hope. And no matter what happens, we have it. Now, as I was just thinking and processing this week about taking hold of hope and asking the Lord, okay, what are the things that keep us from, from taking hold of it? What are the things that, that make us give up hope or become hopeless? And I think some of you here today may feel this way. You, you may ask me, well, what happens when you feel like hope is lost? Maybe you haven't felt God in a very long time. Maybe you, you want to take hold of the hope, but you can't see it. And so you, you feel like you're sort of grappling in a dark room that you want to feel hopeful, but you can't find it because everything just feels a little distant or a little disconnected. And it reminds me of a story I heard once um, about a girl named Agnes. And she uh, told this story in, in some journals that she left. And she said from the time she was a young girl, she believed, and, and she not just believed, I mean, she was on fire. She was, she was passionate about her relationship with God, and she knew Jesus, and she had this undeniable sense of him calling her, and, and at a young age, she left home. She became a missionary. She gave everything she had, and then she reflects that when she got to the place that she felt God had called her, she felt like God had left her. She, she felt like her faith, her hope, was just dark and empty, and she knew that's where she was supposed to, to be and to do, so she, so she continued one step in front of the other and served everyone that she saw, but inside, she felt so hollow and so lonely, and on the outside, she worked and she served and she smiled, but on the inside, she felt this absence of God, and it continued year after year after year, and this was sort of the secret pain that she dealt with. Now, Agnes is actually better known as Mother Teresa, and she wrote this in her journal, and in fact, she requested that all of them be burned so that no one would read them, but no, they didn't listen to her, so we still have them. And it talks about it, and, and she wrote this, feeling God isn't the primary evidence that hope exists. She said that in those moments, she didn't feel all the time that God was near her, but she knew that God existed, and sometimes that pain, that lack of hope, that darkness that you might be here this morning and experiencing is actually the very thing that can be redemptive. It's interesting, Jesus himself experienced the absence of God. Remember on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus was suffering, it was redemptive. It was redemptive to us. We can suffer redemptively by holding on to God even in the midst of the darkness. Psalm 23 talks about it. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. If you can't feel God, if you're in a season right now that you can't feel God, don't let go. Just keep holding on, even if it's by a thread. Don't let go, because that pain and that journey and that darkness can be the very thing that gets you through. 
I believe this is what Hebrews 6 is saying. Take hold of the hope. Don't let it go. Take hold of it. That's what, what, what Jesus is saying. God is saying to these people who are about to let go, just, just hang on, just take hold of the hope because God made you a promise. And whether you feel that promise, whether you, you can wake up every day and you feel joyful about that promise or not, there's a promise that stands. Today when we were singing, I, the words of that part in the, in the song that said, our confidence is in your faithfulness really got to me because it made me think about how our confidence has actually zero to do with us. It has everything to do with the faithfulness of God throughout the ages and throughout over time and throughout our lifetime and throughout the generations of lifetime that our confidence is in his faithfulness. There's a guy in scripture who walked out this concept in the New Testament and I want to just talk about his life a little bit. We actually uh, call him Doubting Thomas. And the Bible, um, the Bible actually doesn't describe Thomas uh, as this nickname. That is the nickname we gave him. Um, he, he, he actually has one like fleeting quick moment of doubt that he actually moves, moves beyond pretty quickly. And he has become the poster child for thousands of years of doubting the Son of God. Poor guy. I mean, we still give anybody a break, do we? We call him that. There's a lot of praiseworthy things about Thomas. In fact, um, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick and he said, um, let's go and, and um, let's all go together. Let's, let's help Lazarus. The disciples that were with him said, no, people want to kill us there. Um, we're not going to go. And Thomas speaks up in John 11:16. He says, Let, let's all go that we may even die with him. So, so Thomas's loyalty is, is much, much bigger than what we give him credit for. These are hardly the words of a chronic doubter. He probably resents the nickname Doubting Thomas, so don't call him that when you get to heaven, all right? Like, just pretend we called him something else. I think if Thomas could defend himself, if he was able to defend himself today, I think he would say something like this. We all have doubt. We all have questions, but hope is not always blatantly obvious, that's never going to change. And in fact, those who claim they don't have any doubts are probably not telling you the whole truth. But sometimes doubting isn't a lack of faith. It's an expression of it. It's saying, you know what? God must be taken seriously. He cannot be taken frivolously. The questions we need to ask are not to disprove the miracle. It's to give credit to the miracle giver. It's to ask the question so that the question is answered, yes, all of God's promises are true. Don't you see that? Are they true? Yes, they are. It sets God up to win the day. Thomas would say that miracles and, and things of healings and those kind of things, they're true occurrences. God can heal. He is more than able to do miracles. That's his faith talking. But what he says is they need to be probed and tested and sifted. Because God isn't afraid of our questions. He will always end up proving to be God because he is. See, we can take hold of hope because God will always prove that he is God. That's the faith we have to have. So when you ask a question, when you say, God, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Or why didn't you show up there? Or why did this have to happen to me? You said that you heal people. Why why is this person not being healed? God is not afraid of those questions because God is still God. 
He's, all his promises are still true. You can't prove him wrong because he's right and he's good and he's God. And, and, it, and it's interesting because I believe that Thomas said, my doubting wasn't to, to say, oh God, you're, you, I don't have faith in you. My doubting was to say, all of my questions can be answered in this miracle working God because of who he is. There's this tradition um, that you bite gold to see if it's authentic. And if your teeth marks um, are left in the gold, it's fool's gold. But if there's no teeth mark, it's the real thing. Uh, so Jesus, I believe he, it's like he says to us, go ahead, go ahead and, and bite into the gold just to see if it's authentic. Go ahead, because even if uh, miracles are genuine occurrences, they can be unfolded theologically and biblically. And he balances us out. I believe there's this part of our Christian heritage that says, I will believe though I have not yet seen. That's sort of this blind faith. But there's this equally needed part of our Christian heritage that says, unless I see, I won't believe, which is what Thomas said. God always invites us to ask the questions. In fact, the word um, skepticism actually means to look at a matter closely with great care to study it and to scrutinize it. And I think based on this definition, the church needs more of that, not less. Because when we look at a matter carefully and when we study it, the miracle-working God we serve comes out to win the day every single time. That you don't have to turn your eyes to blind faith. You can look at what God says and see that he does it, you will have questions. At times your hope will waver, but I believe that those questions will lead you to the God that Thomas met, the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and almighty, and he will true, prove to be true and worthy and that he can be trusted. And he invites us to, to bite into this gold and to find that he is who he says he is, and he is a God who can take hold of the hope that we have. So you might say this morning, okay, so I do have some questions. Now um, I can admit that. I have maybe some doubt about things or why is this is how it is. What do I do with them? Well, I want to look in John 20 and uh, see what Thomas did, all right? So it says, um, John 20, verse 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I won't believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus addresses this connection between seeing and believing. And he says, listen, if you have a question, ask me. Ask the God of the universe to show you. Ask him. Ask him. No matter what miracles or signs God will show us, if we don't have the faith to contain it, it will create distance instead of intimacy. 
People say all the time, well, if God would just do a miracle, then that would just prove that he's real, and then like everything, everyone would just believe him, so why doesn't he just do that? Like just do miracles all the time and just come down and fix things and then we'll all know God's real. Well, the reality is if you don't have the faith to contain it, that miracle will actually create distance between you and God and not intimacy. Because it's all about the relationship. You know, Jesus could have proven to Thomas his existence in a lot of different ways. He could have struck him dead. He would have known right then that God was real. But he actually chose not to do another miracle. He chose to prove his existence to Thomas by his wounds. And he pointed to the nail holes and the spear marks, and he pointed to what he had done on the cross for Thomas. And that spoke to me so clearly this week that maybe God is trying to prove to you he's worthy to be trusted, that he exists. But he's not going to do it by a miracle. Because maybe he knows that your faith isn't big enough to contain it, so it will create distance instead of intimacy. But he says, listen, hope is the fact, the fact that Christ died on a cross for our sin and we can live in that reality. And that is what you can stand on the hope, on the solid rock you stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. That on Christ, the fact that he died on a cross for our sin and his wounds are real and Thomas touched them so that he could actually see that this is what Christ did for him. As you see in the scripture, it changed everything. Verse 28, he just says, my Lord and my God, he sees instantly. I can trust you, you're real. I will not doubt anymore. Questions are okay. Questions when your hope feels lost are okay. They're never gonna go away. But it's important to ask yourself this, where are your questions taking you? Where are your questions taking you? Are they driving you to take hold of hope? Are they driving you to take hold of hope? Uh, the passage I started with in Hebrews um, continues. I want to circle back to that uh, Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. You can read along with me. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author uses this metaphor of an anchor. This is actually only used once in the Bible. The main reason a ship needs an anchor is to ride out the storm so it's not blown off course into the rocks or the reef or into, into another path or direction. And so it needs an anchor. Even in a safe harbor, a ship needs an anchor so it doesn't drift, it doesn't hit something, it doesn't sink. And so whether in the storms of life or in the harbor, wherever your life is right now, we all need an anchor or we'll just destroy ourselves. According to the scripture, we sang it in the song today too, the anchor is lodged within the veil. Now, this is such a powerful word picture, and I want you to catch it 
so that you think about it all week long, that this is a reference to the veil that hung across the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. And it concealed the Ark of the Covenant where God in his glory met with the high priest once a year as he brought the blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So this is the most holy place. There's a curtain and it separates people, all sin, everything out. And then behind the curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the, 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 holy, um, the, the holiest place of all was. In verse 20, it says, Jesus went behind that veil into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner for us. And a forerunner actually means um, he enters into a place first. He, he, he takes us there. He'll take us there someday. Someday we will go with him. If you're a forerunner, you go there first, but your intention is to take somebody with you next time. You don't, you're, just, you're just going on a walk by yourself if you're not going to bring somebody else next time. You're not a forerunner. But a forerunner says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go there first because I'm going to bring the people of God behind me. And Jesus went there as a high priest. And it's just really important to understand in verse 20, it specifies the order of the priesthood that Jesus came from. You see there it says, um, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why is that important? Well, there are a lot of different priesthoods. And he didn't come from the order of Aaron or the order of Levi. These are other priests. Because they had to offer sacrifices for themselves and for other people. These priests died. They had to be replaced. They only served for a certain length of time. Aaron and Levi, they offered blood of bulls and goats, blood that never took sins away, just represented the blood that could. They did a foreshadow of what the ultimate sacrifice would be. But Jesus... He enters behind the veil, behind the curtain, from the priesthood of Melchizedek. He, he enters with his own infinitely precious blood, his own indestructible life. So that his atoning work behind that veil was perfect and would last forever. Melchizedek represents the, 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 the legacy of priesthood that never ends, one that never dies, one that never needs blood from bulls and from goats to, uh, to atone for things. And so our anchor, our promised future is sure, is steadfast. It is the finished and purchased work of Jesus, our high priest. And so he's saying, that this, this verse is saying that Jesus is the anchor in the veil the one that's already been there to the Holy of Holies that's already atoned for all of us. And, and so imagine yourself the rope that ties around your waist and, and, just, and just goes to the anchor behind the veil. Just don't untie the rope, okay? Because you'll be destroying your life. You'll be listless out there trying to figure out how to get there. But if you keep that rope strong and secure and you hold on to it, it is tied to an anchor that goes straight to the holy of holies and atones for all of our sin and some one that will never die that will never change Jesus is our high priest and because of that we can get our hopes up I thought that would get you excited this morning we can get our hopes up we can get our hopes up we can get our hopes up when things are are just tumultuous around us we can get our hopes up when we're in the harbor and things are calm we can get our hopes up when, when we, we face storms of, of false doctrine that blow us off course or storms of doubt uh, when, when we don't know exactly what to think about things or storms of difficult trials or storms of defeat. 
We can get our hopes up because our anchor is tied within the veil. That's where it goes to. That's where it goes straight to. And these storms and these doubts, we we can feel like we're, we're feeling our way in the dark at times, but we have a hope that is an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. That part never ends. We have confidence in your faithfulness. We have confidence in your faithfulness. The part that gets goofed up sometimes is what we do with that rope. Is how, how, how loosely we hang on to it. Or, or, or by a thread that we hold it. But we have a high priest within the veil and he has promised to save all who take refuge in him. And our action this morning and the end of this series is to take hold of that hope, to take hold of it. However you can, whatever is possible, because God is a God who keeps his promise. We're going to end today. I'm actually asked, well, there's a lot of music today. We just like to worship God. I actually asked the team to lead us in Get Your Hopes Up, which is kind of our theme song for this past. Would you stand up? We're just going to sing this once through, and then I'll pray. And as we're singing it, as we're singing Get Your Hopes Up, would you just ask God to remind you of his faithful promises? Ask God of his steadfast hope. Ask God to show you that on Christ the solid rock we stand. I see the sun waking up before me, reviving dream. I feel the wind on my back with promise, reminding me there's a garment of praise for
as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Go and have a great week and get your hopes up. We'll see you next Sunday.